Good evening, everybody. Thank you all very much for coming this evening. Uh, just to introduce myself briefly, I'm James Ward, Chairman of the Council for British Research in the Levant, CBRL. And we're here as guests of the London Middle East Institute. Thank you very much to LMEI for allowing us to uh, take part in this, one of their Tuesday lecture series. And if, you, if you're not already on their list, I recommend you do get on the mailing list for LMEI events. They have a Tuesday evening series and they have many other very interesting lectures. And also on CBRL, um, we're very um, <coughs> happy to introduce ourselves to many of you who may not have come across this before. We are, are behind this wonderful publication, uh, Contemporary Levant, um, of which the founding editor is, is here, Michelle Obey, to whom we're extremely grateful. She's been a trustee of uh, CBRL for some time now, and she founded Contemporary Levant uh, almost four years ago, and it's got off to a great start. Um, there are there were some copies. There may still be some copies uh, of the of the journal outside. And otherwise, there's a flyer which tells you how to how to find it and how to find us. Uh, and do please sign up um, to us. We have a very nice, friendly um, newsletter which tells you about things that uh, CBRL are doing. So I'm not going to speak very long. I just want to um, introduce uh, Michel. Uh, I already have as the editor in chief of Contemporary Levant. And we have here on the table, uh, starting from the far end, uh, um, Penina Bertner, who is the Professor Emeritus in Social Anthropology at Kiel University. <coughs> and next to her, Claudia Liebelt, Assistant Professor in Social Anthropology at the University of Bayreuth, who's come over from Berlin today. Thank you very much for coming, Claudia. <coughs> and as our commentator, uh, we have Denis Candiotti, Emeritus uh, Professor of Development Studies here at SOAS. And apologies from one of the other uh, authors of the articles in this special edition on gendering Islam, uh, Laura Pereiro from <coughs> Unable to Come. Um, I'm going to listen to this evening's talk, talks and roundtable with great interest because it's a, a new subject for me. I'm told that it's actually a relatively new subject, uh, only perhaps two or a few more years older than, uh, than, than, than today. So um, I'm going to hand over now to Michelle, ask her to. <coughs> To take, uh, to take the session for us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm delighted to chair the session on Gendering Everyday Islam. Um, as James said, I've had the pleasure of editing CBRL's new journal, and um, I do hope that uh, you look around on the tables. Maggie has very kindly left lots of copies. If you'd like to take one uh, or just browse through, that would be great. Um, so for those who don't know the journal yet, uh, Contemporary Levant is a regional multidisciplinary uh, journal that focuses broadly on contemporary politics, society and culture in the Levant region, its diasporas and neighboring countries that have a clear relevance to it. Now, the editorial board was particularly interested um, in this special issue on gendering Islam because of its agenda to rethink the terms of recent debates and the scholarship of Muslim societies. The issue makes very interesting interventions, which will hopefully come out um, in the panel and in the question and answer session. But perhaps I could list a few questions that it raises, which we might want to keep in mind as we listen to our speakers. So the first issue, the first question is, it raises relates to everyday Islam. <coughs> the issue revisits this concept of everyday Islam that has been uh, caused for some heated debates recently at least in anthropological circles, and asks to what extent is everyday Islam generative, both empirically and theoretically. The second issue is gender. 
Now, with the rise of the anthropology of Muslims um, as a significant sub-discipline, there are some landmark studies, such as, for example, Lara Deeb or Sabah Mahmoud's work, and they have focused predominantly on Muslim women. But there have also been, there's also been a surge of ethnographies on uh, Muslim men, for example, Charles Hirschkin, Magnus Marsden, Samuel Shilke, among others. So the issue raises the question of why we need to gender Islam. What does this analytic bring, or perhaps bring back, to our knowledge of Muslims, and why now? Why are we talking about gender now, given you know, that gender and Islam have always defined um, Middle Eastern studies, at least? The third issue is ethics. Scholarship of Islam has borrowed and built on discussions of ethics um, that claim that we are ethical uh, beings <coughs> who lead ethical existences in our everyday, ordinary lives. Is there such a thing as intrinsically Islamic ethics in our everyday lives? And finally, the issue draws on material from Mediterranean as well as British contexts. What is the benefit of using such a comparative lens? And what is the value of this conversation across these very diverse settings? I hope you keep these in mind and that the discussion will answer or address some of these. Without further ado, I give the floor to Claudia and each speaker will have about seven to 10 minutes and I've got a two minute warning. If Penina goes out. 10 minutes, out. <laughs> <laughs> ten minutes plus. Okay, hello everybody, and um, I'm happy to be here, and my task in this um, roundtable discussion was to bring out briefly the aim and agenda of our special journal issue. So Pnina and my work on this issue started with our joint discussions of an article published by Mayanti Fernando and Nadia Fadil titled Rediscovering the Everyday Muslim in the Howe Journal in 2015. And in this article, Fadel and Fernando speak of an anthropological divide between the scholars of Islam. So on the one side, they see those who focus on ordinary ethics instigated by the groundbreaking work of Talal Assad and his disciples, in particular Sabah Mahmoud and Charles Hirschkind. <coughs> On the other, scholars, they claim, emphasize the ambiguity, creativity, and, and um, the everyday of ordinary people, um, the um, everyday Muslim, so to speak. So siding with the first group rather than the second, Fadel and Fernando warn of the pitfall they see imply in the, implied in the study of everyday Islam, namely to mark revivalist groups as exceptional and unreal as opposed to the everyday, not so strict, perhaps even secular Muslim that can easily be grasped by the secular liberal reader as familiar and human. So discussing Fadel <coughs> and Fernando's important and provocative contribution, as well as Samuli Shilke's and Lara Deep's insightful responses from the perspective of our own research, which is on aesthetic body modification in Turkey, in my case, and um, on Muslim Punjabi women's rituals, ritual practices in Pninas, we were surprised that the gendered aspects <coughs> of everyday lives and ethics were not really part of the discussion. So we felt that the insertion of gender as an analytical category would help to both reframe the debate and open up new directions for further research. 
So therefore, we drafted a proposal for the 2016 EASA conference in Milan, um, calling for papers based on ethnographic research on the gendered aspects of the everyday in Muslim contexts that also engage with the debate on everyday Islam. Interestingly, our call for gendering the debate attracted a number of excellent studies on Muslim women and femininity exclusively. So in the special issue, we decided to focus on women, not because we endorse the common equation of gender with women, but because we believe that such a focus is especially suited to analyzing the gender dynamics in um, Muslim majority societies. And um, we will go <coughs> on to discuss this. So the insight offered by earlier studies on the topic um, in the wider Mediterranean, namely that experiences of everyday life in Muslim-majority societies are deeply gendered to the extent of proclaiming two separate worlds um, which pass without touching, in the words of Dovignon from um, 1977, has been criticized by Laila Abulugot and other feminist scholars since the 1970s. Thus, the analysis of a male public sphere as opposed to a female domestic sphere could easily be added to the list of Orientalist binary oppositions recently analyzed by Hirschkind in regard to the anthropology of Islam, a list that also includes practices versus texts, religious attachment in the Middle East versus European skepticism, and um, norms versus everyday <coughs> ambiguities. Um, so we argue that both Laila Abulugot's work on the Aulat Ali and Sabah Mahmoud's on the Egyptian mosque movement offered an important intervention in this regard, namely by revalorizing the everyday as experienced and mastered <coughs> by Muslim women. Moreover, both Abu Lugot and Mahmoud were critical of a simplistic notion of everyday resistance, but instead conceptualized the everyday as an important site for women for breaking coherence and introducing a world full of flux and contradiction in Abu Lugot's work, um, and for learning to cultivate the compliance or submission in Mahmoud's words that is at the heart of Islam. So what do we actually mean when we talk about the everyday? Firstly, we draw on the classical literature on the topic, so Schütz, Goffman, Bourdieu, to emphasize that the everyday is that which is familiar, taken for granted, naturalized, reflective, uh, sorry, unreflective, and embodied. Secondly, um, what most interests us in this special issue is to investigate empirically the fact that there is no longer any simple doxa or taking for granted assumptions for many actors in the wider Mediterranean, whether these be secular, Islamic, or Christian norms and doctrines. So in an age of militarized violence, the so-called war on terror, restrictive migration and border regimes, and ever more precarious life circumstances in the wider Mediterranean region, every lifestyle option appears to be making a statement, whether intentionally or not. 
actors must navigate through an ideological thicket of different lifestyles, <coughs> opinions, ideologies, and practices. They may choose to act situationally or embrace one lifestyle totally without, however, being able to ever completely suppress the ambiguities and complexities of everyday life. <coughs> so following up on these insights, we claim, allows us to see an almost revolutionary process in recent years, namely that of Muslim women claiming leadership roles, becoming knowledgeable, self-reflective, and literate in reference to the hermeneutics and rhetorics of Islamic texts. In our introduction to the special volume, we discuss this process by referring to the notion of literacy. So, thus we find evidence of increasing of an increasing literacy, literacy in a rather classical sense, namely the acquisition of skills necessary to recite and decode the Quran as outlined in the contributions by Merve Gökner on women coming together for Quran classes in a Turkish village mosque, and um, also by Laura Ferrero on Egyptian migrant women coming together for <coughs> similar courses in um, a mosque in Turin. And it's also illustrated by this um, wonderful, wonderful picture of um, women studying the Quran in, in Manchester. Um, so, in some instances, this also implies a form of critical literacy in the sense of engaging with texts or other forms of media to start a discussion about their underlying meanings, possibly challenging earlier interpretations. For example, the young second generation Moroccan female college studies studied by Blanca Mendoza in this volume adopt a critical Islamic feminist discourse to assert their own sense of being Muslim, model Muslims in an Islamophobic mainstream society. Secondly, by doing so, they also challenge their parents' plans for them, including the plans for marriage. Likewise, discussing marriages, Kavari Qureshi <coughs> describes the process of British South Asian women in difficult marriages, educating themselves <coughs> by reading popular Islamic marriage advice literature. So the women she studied productively used this literature to affect changes in their everyday <coughs> lives within rather than in contrast to an Islamic framework, persuading not only themselves, but also family members who at least initially tend to emphasize the evils of divorce, especially if initiated by the wife. Of a still different sort is the media literacy acquired by the young Moroccan women studied by Laura Menin in this issue, who used their mobile phones to mediate premarital romance and flirting. Like all the contributions to the issue, Menin shows that the everyday for these women is co-constituted as a deeply gendered condition with Islamic practice and morality rather than opposed to it. Echoing these findings in my own research on femininity and aesthetic body modification in urban Turkey, I found that in a situation in which neither um, social conventions nor religious rulings are fully worked out, 
young pious women draw heavily from the internet to inquire about and discuss the permissibility of aesthetic body modification and beauty practices. And armed with the information obtained from the internet, women adapt Islamic norms creatively to negotiate the boundaries of moral permissiveness and bodily well-being and reconcile them with their aesthetic desires. Thus, a Muslim everyday life thus can mean that one seeks to have pleasure and desire in a halal way. And Sertaj Sechlik Olu recently in an article on um, Muslim women's agency said that um, there is um, different phases of um, discussion in anthropology of Muslim women's agency and she, um, she sees a turn towards studies that um, focus on exactly these um, aspects, namely pleasure and um, joy and um, it is um, very important to say that um, these are um, in no way um, contradictive to, um, to Islam. Um, and finally, the process of becoming literate may also be tied to an emphasis of ethical self-transformation and ethical leadership for women, an aspect which um, Pnina Wirkner focuses on in her contribution um, to the special issue, and um, which she will talk about um, more in a minute. So um, to sum up, this is an ongoing conversation among anthropologists, not only about a changing gender order and the role of the everyday in Muslim majority societies and minority contexts, but indeed we argue about the attempts to define Islam as an anthropological object in the first place. And this difficult task was recently undertaken by Samuli Schielke in his entry on Islam to the new edition of the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Anthropology. And wondering whether there was an anthropology of Islam, Schielke refers to Abdallah Hamoudi's work and suggestion that fieldwork provides anthropologists with, quote, an open-ended and often surprising encounter through which they may learn how God's revelation to Muhammad matters for some human being, beings in specific situations, end of quote. And um, I hope our special issue contributes to that. And um, I think it's a very open-ended, um, but nevertheless, um, yes, a substantial um, definition. Thank you very much. Can you know? Yeah, uh, I have to press something. Right. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Good. Uh, thanks, Claudia. That's brilliant. Uh, I haven't got much to add, but anyway, uh, I want to talk about Saba Mahmoud's book, which is the subject, the topic of my essay in the special <coughs> issue. Now, Saba Mahmoud's Politics of Piety, published in 2005, has become over the years almost a sacred text a classic endlessly cited and extensively debated. Her recent and timely death, and we dedicated the issue to her, makes any criticism of the book seem almost sacrilegious, because undoubtedly it is a marvelously complex and original text, profoundly theoretical. Nonetheless, I suggest it would be a great pity 
if its undoubted excellence stops forward rather than expanding the horizon of debate on Muslim women in the contemporary world. I have to confess that ever since I first read the book, I felt Mahmoud was missing an important dimension of the Egyptian women's piety movement, that of female ethical leadership. It is important because it highlights the collective dimensions of the piety movement, rather than simply focusing on ethics of individual asceticism, selfhood, and self-denial or submission, which is what I think she does. Her theory kind of gets stuck in the second volume of Foucault's trilogy of on technologies of the self, on subjectivation, subjectivation. Whereas in the third volume, Foucault defines asceticism as the grounds for a move from mastery of the self to a mastery of the household, and finally mastery of the city, that is the polity, the political community. <coughs> I call this theory a theory of ethical leadership. Before going any further, let me spell out why Mahmoud's discussion of the piety movement relates clearly to our topic of gendering everyday Islam. As Claudia has said, the everyday refers to a constantly changing way of being in the world. This means that it varies historically and across different contexts. But because everyday behavior changes very gradually, most of the time everyday life is unreflective and taken for granted. In the case of the, of the women's piety movement, however, a gendered, feminine, everyday way of behaving is subjected to active refashioning. Thus, a central argument in politics of piety has to do with the embodied nature of the pedagogy of piety, its aim of instilling repetitive, <coughs> taken-for-granted, ritualized modes of being a pious Muslim woman. Many of the women in the piety movement, especially the leaders, the women preachers who lead teaching sessions in mosques or at homes, are drawn from Cairo's educated elites and middle classes, not from the Egyptian working classes. Remarkably, the movement arose at the same time as young educated women in Cairo were becoming more cosmopolitan and, among other things, mingling freely with young men and having jobs in male-dominated male workplaces. Despite this, some of the women from the very same class embraced a mode of piety that on the surface led them to accept the superiority of male authority, including, for example, also willingness to be a second wife. Now, how can this be? <coughs> to disentangle the reasons, I began by evaluating the book from the perspective of two primary anthropological modes of ethnographic analysis, reanalysis and deconstruction. For Max Gluckman, reanalysis did not mean going outside the data, for example, by invoking another theory, but paying very careful attention to the minutiae of ethnographic detail so as to reorient the data in a way that could better explain the ethnography in a radically different way. So he didn't move outside the ethnography, he stayed within it. By contrast, deconstruction looks at the hidden gaps in the text pointing to the unstated presuppositions, often politically significant, that are glossed over by the writer. This contrast will become clear in my analysis of the politics of piety where I use both methods. Let me first outline the basic argument of the book. Politics of piety is framed by two paradoxes, the paradox of subjectivation in chapter one and the paradox of piety in chapter five. Missing, I suggested the third paradox, specifically relating to the rise of an ethical, pious leadership. I call this paradox 
This the paradox of ascetic self-denial. Central to Mahmoud's theoretical argument is her objection to any simplistic notion of resistance as adopted by liberal feminists, that is, fighting for individual autonomy, equality, and freedom. Instead, she traces an alternative genealogy of resistance by Michel Foucault and Judith Butler's before rejecting even this version. In Michel Foucault's History of Sexuality, Volume 1, it will be recalled, Foucault argues that just as power is pervasive, so too are resistances to it, <coughs> so that points of resistance are everywhere in the power network. Hence, he proposes there is no single locus of great refusal, no soul of a revolt source of all rebellions. Instead, there's a plurality of resistances. That's where Foucault, to quote Mahmoud, the subject does not precede power relations in the form of an individual consciousness, but is produced through these relations, which form the necessary conditions of its possibility. Key to this formulation is what Foucault calls the paradox of sub subjectivation. The very processes and conditions that secure a subject's subordination are the means by which she becomes a self-conscious identity and agent. And this I'm taking this from Mahmoud as well. Following Foucault, Judith Butler also argued that there is no subject prior to discourse, so that agency is located as a reiterative or rearticulating practice imminent to power, and not a relation of external opposition to power. Foucault, in fact, sees resistance as invoking power. If there were no resistance, there would be no power relations. Okay, so this is the kind of background theory. Mahmoud rejects both Foucault and Butler. Instead, she draws on Aristotle's notion of habitus, which is concerned with ethical formation and presupposes a specific pedagogical process by which a moral character is secured. <coughs> it is secured through repeated everyday bodily practices such as prayer or by modest attire like the veil in such a way that outward behavior and inward dispositions are merged into a single unity that takes, as she says, permanent root in one's character. Mahmoud objects to the binary terms of resistance and subordination because this opposition, she says, glosses over the project of ethical self-formation which motivates the women, a project defined neither by a desire for autonomy nor for gendered equality in the feminist liberal sense, of course, what they really want is to be very close to God. When we look carefully at the politics of piety itself, we find that pious women are not, in fact, practicing their religious piety vis-à-vis -vis the whole of Egyptian society, but within a more restricted field of, of a religious public. Much of the pedagogical effort women invest in regular mosque lessons and courses is intellectual. And this is what Claudia was also saying. It is devoted to the acquisition of religious literacy in classical Islamic texts and hermeneutical traditions, which over time, if they succeed in the path of knowledge and piety, qualifies them to act as dayats, instructors of other women and preachers, able to lead the prayers and to claim the right, in the case of some women, to perform in public, even against their husband's wishes. Even though they define themselves as non-political, their capacity as leaders, educators, and activists all highlight the imbrication of their Islamic subjectivities in modernity and nationalist aspirations. The women's activist <coughs> proselytizing impulse is, of course, what worries the Egyptian government. 
not the personal piety of the women, despite the self-declared apolitical agenda of the women's piety. But so in other words, what I'm trying to say will become clearer later is that she was, Mahmoud objects to the, to the notion of resistance. I'm saying where there's resistance, it's really within the religious sphere. So my first point is that ethical self-fashioning of pious women, and hence the agentive capacity for resistance, can only be understood once we circumscribe our, our social anthropological gaze to the more immediate <coughs> context in which the female piety movement has arisen. The resistance is surely not to the entire secular state, but to long-established religious traditions of hegemonic male authoritative Islamic knowledge and practice. Reanalyzing re the field of performance in this more circumscribed sense points to the fact that women's so-called resistance cannot be dismissed because it glosses over the complexity of piety as a mode of ethical self-fashioning, as Mahmoud would have it. It is ethical self-mastery, I propose, that enables a powerful mode of female resistance aimed at overturning sclerotic traditions of male dominance in the religious field. To address this issue, however, Mahmoud's theorization of agency as located in an ethics of subjective personal piety would need to be extended to include a theorization of ethical leadership. Now, if reanalysis has drawn our attention to the situated context and field of past activism, deconstruction alerts us to the peculiarities of the text itself. In this respect, there's a strange disjuncture in the politics of piety between the intellectual achievement of Islamic literacy by the women preachers, analyzed in detail in chapter three, and the embodied ethical self-fashioning of their followers, as stressed by Mahmoud, which is analyzed primarily <coughs> in chapter four, but with further vignettes elsewhere too, in chapters one and five. So chapter three alerts us in masterly detail to the scholarly sophistication of pious women preachers and their hermeneutical capacities, their juridical reasoning based on a wide range of texts and their exemplary mon uh, knowledge. And it's a wonderful chapter. But are these preachers also exemplars of ethical self-making? In one sense, they lead by embodied example of self-denial and zood, as the Sufi center in Pakistan that I studied did. But put the question more simply, are they followed and loved for their extraordinary piety or for their impressive textual knowledge and reasoning? This, reason, this question remains unanswered. We're never told that the followers love them, <coughs> which you would say about Sufi Sayyid. Followers love him. We don't know. In the absence of explicit ethnography, we can only assume that at least some of these intellectual leaders are exemplary in being deeply pious subjects, while recognizing that there are also some preachers who are quite young, even though they may, be, may have completed the requisite formal training to be preachers. How am I doing for time? Yeah, one minute. So I'll skip something. We need to remember <coughs> that the women's mass movement clearly consists of different strands and streams. Since 2011, women members of the Muslim Brotherhood have had to put their bodies on the line, risking their lives in the face of police brutality. This was not true of many Salafi women, so the, the, the different streams differed in, re, in the response to the Arab Spring. 
But the reason why Mahmoud's theoretical critique of feminist agency is misplaced, I think, lie elsewhere. Above all, in her failure to theorize the aspirations of a Muslim female ethical leadership, the subtle detour that Muslim women have been making to claim rights, including the right to leadership, within the world of Islamic knowledge, through their knowledge and, for some at least, extraordinary acts of access and such as piety. They are successfully challenging, you could say resisting, the status quo of male Islamic scholarship and authority. In parallel movements in Judaism and Christianity, women have been claiming an equal right to pursue religious scholarship, literacy, and positions of leadership. Hence, Jewish Orthodox women in Israel and the United States claim the right to study the Talmud and lead the prayer. Anglican women have achieved the right to be ordained in, as bishops. In Indonesia, women have officially gained the status of ulama. This expansion of women's rights within religious movements is modern in the sense that it posits a change in the very definition of women, not merely as virtuous, but as scholars and intellectuals with leadership capacities. At the same time, some of these movements, though not all, draw strict impermeable boundaries around the faithful. Seen in terms of wider historical processes, it is evident that in tandem with the mass expansion of print capitalism and literacy in the 20th century, the expansion of religious literacy is beginning to challenge the exclusive authority of a caste of male priests and religious experts, and has led to the global spread of women preachers in reformers and fundamental movements, and the word is missing. So I think that basically virtually all the papers in our uh, special edition, we didn't solicit it, we didn't ask for it, in some way or other prove this intellectual quest that women are making. Thank Thank you. you. I'm very pleased um, to be with you this evening because I'm commenting on a subject that obviously I haven't gone as deeply into as those present, but it was a delight and I recommend that you all do delving into this incredible volume, this incredible collection, where the tensions between the approaches around the concept of everyday Islam and Assad's theorization of Islam as a discursive tradition have been comprehensively and very elegantly revisited. So you have a valuable collection before you. I found myself, though, thinking that I had a different angle on this whole debate and another way to contribute. So I'd like to make two points, basically. First, I think it's important to understand why a fine scholar such as Sabah Mahmoud ended up choosing to conflate Salafism and Muslim Brotherhood adherence, which represent very different political stances and very different practices, I may say, into a monolithic concept of piety. And how, by the same token, the cultivation of virtue becomes a totalistic preoccupation that appears to blot out all other markers of self-identification. The answer, I think, and this is what I venture as my own contribution, 
lies not in Assad's concept of discursive tradition, but in his theorization of secularism. Secularism is interpreted by Assad as a unique configuration of post-Reformation Christianity and as part of the apparatus of cultural hegemony of the West. 2003, that's his definition. In this perspective, Islam and its discursive tradition are made to stand in the place of non-enlightenment societies and critiques of secular modernity inevitably lead its proponents to a search for the non-enlightenment non subject. When this ideal, typical, and essentially philosophical construct encounters concrete ethnographic context, you inevitably run into trouble. That's where everyday Islam comes, but I don't think it's the answer either. This explains, in great measure, the homogenizing drive in Mahmoud's work, where the focus on the cultivation of virtue and piety elides crucial <clears throat> distinctions between, say, the Muslim brotherhoods and various shades of Salafism, or indeed Sufism, right. in the case of uh, your work on Pakistan. So critics such as Gauvin, Hafez, Nida Vermder have already pointed that out. However, so nicely as you did. However, <laughs> however, if you are in search of the so-called non-enlightenment subject, which presumably represents a form of radical authority vis-a-vis the subject of liberal theory, you inevitably end up inadvertently essentializing the subjects of your study by locking them up into subjectivities that are forever incommensurate with those of feminists who are presumably in the grip of liberalism, thus freezing them into an apparently atemporal identity. Now, some political sociologists who work on social movements, such as Asaf Bayat, tried to get out of that bind by proposing the concept of post-Islamism, which he illustrated both in the case of Iran oh, and post, Egypt, post-Islamism. Post He's got a book with a collection with the name post-Islamism. I don't think I have time to elaborate my difficulties with that concept, but suffice it to say that probably post-Islamism is meant to be doing the work of mediating between what you call everyday Islam and the discursive tradition approach. <laughs> and what it denotes, basically, is the development of new sensibilities, especially among young generations, who are vested in a public presence for Islam and who endorse religious observances while, at the same time, nurturing aspirations for a more inclusive and pluralistic society and, indeed, indulging in all sorts of modern genres, including <laughs> rap, among other things. Okay. <laughs> So this is the, the, the answer. So I think that there is there a messiness <coughs> which cannot be resolved by simply trying to salvage something out of Mahmoud's work by talking about women's ethical leadership. It may be a missing dimension, but I don't think it solves the problem, even if that were to, because I think it is inherent, it is intrinsic. This is what I call the birth defect of this paradigm. 
is that it leads you inevitably to the cul-de-sac of essentialism. You can't escape it. It's logic, okay? You, you can't get out of it because if you posit somebody in a position of radical authority, the minute they move out of that niche, the, the plot is lost, you see. Either you occupy that slot or you've moved over. And this is the great difficulty when Mahmoud talks about Islamic reform. Because you see any form of so-called moderate Islam, a very suspect concept, makes you shade into forms of liberal discourse which immediately disqualify you. So there's a kind of, uh, how shall I put it? Uh, bind. A bind or a cul-de-sac. You know, you're sort of, at one point, you sort of get stuck. But my more important point, actually, uh, maybe because I'm not as wedded to ethnographic method as anthropologists are, is that I notice that studies of everyday Islam and forms of piety seem to inhabit an institutional void. We find out very little about the infrastructure that sustains these movements and lends them life and substance. Now, because I did my homework and I read this issue from cover to cover, I was very struck about that in the article on Turkey, in a Turkish village, where we have a very interesting, uh, shall we say, paradox, because the women in question are of Bosnian extraction. They come from the Balkans, where uh, people live in a much more heterosocial world than the rest of the Middle East. And these women who are now becoming literate and pious uh, are being given messages in their Quran courses which go against the grain of their habitus. They are being re-acculturated. But nowhere does this author tell us who runs the Quranic courses, which mosques are these, how is this insertion into this village life made. Now, if I wasn't from Turkey and I didn't happen to know that the Diyanet, the Ministry of Religious Affairs, now with a budget which is probably second to the Ministry of Defense, has set up, you know, not only mosques and Quranic courses, but indeed a specifically gender-targeted approach to Islamization. So it is not just about teaching Islam, but very specifically teaching women how to behave as good Muslim women. So in every single province and indeed sub-provinces, you now have uh, counseling and guidance bureaus. Uh, and what do these counselors They actually talk to women about their daily problems, trying to reconcile them to never seeking a divorce, to reconcile themselves to obedience and so on. So a huge apparatus is mobilized, basically, on every level to give these messages to women. There is a program called the Child and the Mosque program, where there is an encouragement to take children to the mosque early. And rather touchingly, because we're in a consumerist society, prizes are offered. There's a lottery draw where you can get an iPad or a bicycle. I have the posters, you know, where the children are given incentives, which are very much those of a market economy or the kind of loyalty things that you expect from a supermarket, not from a mosque. However, what I'm trying to say is this. 
behind every development, I don't know enough about the mosque movement in Egypt, but I know a great deal about the various um, attempts at, to reacculturate the villagers from Bosnia or, you know, the sort of large scale, and I might add rather expensive, uh, because huge amounts of resources. This, of course, creates very paradoxical results, because what happens is that now there is a huge cadre of women preachers. Unlike the preachers you're talking about, these women preachers are actually employees of the state. They draw a state salary, which doesn't mean that they're uniform, by the way. I met preachers who were here in London, women preachers, and because there are different schools of thought within the Dianet, some of them are staunchly feminist, some of them are unbelievably reactionary. They're a mixed bag. But what is the paradox to me is this, that attempts to uh, evangelize, shall we say, women into domesticity, into being docile wives or mothers, goes through thrusting them more and more in the public sphere. So what we've had is a feminization of the cadres of the Dianet, because now there are more and more women employed, and their target audiences are also women. So the paradox is that you have more and more women holding these paid jobs, preaching to more and more women about, you know, obedience, patience, you know, accepting their role in the family, having many children, etc., etc. Uh, likewise, the activities that go through the municipalities, because they encourage. Uh, women to participate in educational activities with their children. Some excellent projects like reading books together. Now these books are by Islamist women authors. Meanwhile, these women who would have been sitting at home are becoming literate, learning to read books with their own children, going out there. And of course, one of the big pluses of forms of sociality that involve religion is that it gives them legitimacy so that women who may not have been allowed to attend a girl's tea party uh, are putting their husband in a very difficult position. And this is actually the power politics behind a lot of this, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. People are afraid to enunciate it. But of course, when you are in a weak bargaining position, you can up the ante by taking the moral ground. And nothing is more rewarding than shaming uh, and, uh, you know, unsatisfactorily religious husband. Uh, it is really so you become literate and you can turn around and say you are a bad Muslim. You have to do what I tell you because I know I am now literate. Let us not minimize, please, this, this aspect. So I think that in many of the articles that I read, I think I have to conclude now, no? I've yes. taken my 10 minutes. Uh, I would have been very keen to find out more about these women's lives, to find out more about the contexts, about the infra, I call it the infrastructure, the brass tacks of everyday Islam. Where do you find the meeting places, the Quran courses, uh, who runs them? How long have they been going? Who are the women preachers? What this sort of flight into the anthropology of ethics with due respect has done to me is that it has voided it of any 
context that I can recognize as an everyday context, paradoxically. Okay, I think I shall end there. I've said plenty. Thank you. Great comments. Um, would you like to respond in like I two just minutes want to respond each? On one point you made, Denise. I think that by saying that even the, the, the leadership, uh, the religious leadership is, is an essentialist. No, no, I didn't say that. I said that even if Mahmoud had included the dimension yeah. that you think is missing because of the uh, way it's set up, yeah. it wouldn't have saved it. That's it's all I'm true. saying. I mean, I accept the homogenizing and all that, but I think that what one gets the insight very well from that one chapter of hers about this intellectual engagement that these women have is something that I think goes throughout the Middle East and the Mediterranean. I mean, what we found, and I agree with you that there's much more that can be said about the context, but this impetus to achieve literacy, to and through it also legitimacy and dominance, seems to be everywhere, everywhere in the countries and contexts that the people who contributed to this issue had. That, that was what was interesting, because we didn't tell them. So I think this, there is something going on, as mm -hmm. you say yourself, mm -hmm. that, that is a movement and it may have a, a sort of reactionary element in it, as you're saying as well. We will, I mean, we need to know, as it were, the warp and worth of this in each country, right. because it's different. I mean, right. Turkey is rather unique because, you know, it is very state-led, uh, right, right, state right. etc. Other contexts are different. Yeah. But all I'm saying is that without specifically knowing how the institutional context of each society pans out, it's very difficult to interpret. I think that's true. Very and difficult it, to interpret. Lacking, very much lacking in the, the Mahmoud book. Claudia, do you want to respond before we take questions from the I floor? mean, thank you so much for your comments. And um, what I um, learn from them is um, perhaps that we um, should pay greater attention at the everyday politics of, um, of everyday Islam, so to speak. And, um, and um, I mean, also, um, this is, I find, not so different from the argument you're making um, with Sabah Mahmoud that, um, you know, because um, to talk about leadership is also a kind of politics. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what I find very interesting in this um, notion of infrastructure of everyday Islam is um, also um, the aspect of class. Oh, I mean, yes. when you look at Turkey and I think also Egypt, as far as I know from the literature, because I didn't do field work there, but um, there is a new um, middle class um, mm. which defines itself as consciously Muslim and um, which, at least in, in the um, context of Turkey, is, is a new phenomenon, and, and a sophisticated urban um, middle class that claims for itself um, positions of power. And um, so this aspect of class is, is also um, very interesting to look at. And, and I think um, I would agree that this is... Um, this um, focus on 
power politics, on issues of class, on on um, yeah um, different ideological um, strands within these movements is is um, what is not really addressed in in the literature on on um, on Islam as a discourse. And, and can we afford that? Um, I mean, I mean, um, I think when you, um, the debate, um, the question for me is also, um, what, what's the level of analysis? Do you look at particular um, case studies or do you try to make an argument on the anthropology of Islam as a whole? And um, so, Perhaps this brings us back to the question, is there an anthropology of Islam? Can and should there be one? Because um, oh. such a project is, is always in a way um, generalizing. And um, I mean, so this is for me also a question of generalization and particularization in, in many ways. And but. Nevertheless, I would say, like Nina, that there is something um, in going on in the Middle East or in, in the wider <laughs> Mediterranean, um, which perhaps uh, cannot be grasped with the notion of post-Islamism, but um, perhaps with something like post post-Islamism. Um, <laughs> I mean, Asif Bayat um, really talks about a time before the Arab Spring. He talks, I think his um, publication... No, no, even afterwards, even he's still hanging okay, on. Okay, he's still hanging yeah, on, yeah. but I think his first <laughs> publication was in 2010, yeah. um, where he analyzes um, the hopes that were also connected with um, these new Islamic movements, namely of um, making, um, of, of democratization. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I mean, studying Turkey, um, we know about these hopes also being discussed within Turkey, um, which have not been fulfilled. I think we can say that um, in terms of, of democracy. So, so the political situation has changed in the past few years. And, yeah. and so this is something that, um, that um, hap has happened in, in many societies. Um, of um, of the Middle East and and so I'm wondering whether we can we can still um, draw something um, more some more general insights from from this um, political situation. I think we better take some questions from the floor um, yeah. before we. So please raise your hand. I've kind of gone. If you can just tell us your name. So uh, Adil Khan, University of Cambridge. Um, Foucault describes ascesis, uh, Nina, as, a, as I, if I recall it correctly, as an exercise oneself in the activity of thought. And the activity of thought. 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 I think it's, it's something of that more sort. Than that, it's, uh, anyway. But um, anyways, um, he, in his other than his three volumes, he also in the use of pleasure, he explores this aspect of. I, if I remember correctly, this relationship between subjectification and desubjectification. So he, he, he exposes opposite as well, which is perhaps something akin to what you're talking about in terms of ascetic self-denial. 
So I was just wondering, just to support your argument further, that in Foucault there's a bit of a Sheikh Foucault who might be, you know, <laughs> having arguing a bit of a Zuhdi, you know, sense as well, it's which very is very similar to uh, to discussions of like Sufism and other traditions, mystical traditions of asceticism. There's something there in there's those something books. There, yeah. So I'm just wanting to say that there's there's that, but it's but what that leaves with with it, 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 in a bit of a a, 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 a problem is that, uh, perhaps if it is a problem, is that uh, where's the boundary between where Foucault ends and where Sufism begins or not? Or maybe maybe we can talk about in terms of, a, you know, sort of is there a universal experience of the experience of the self? It's kind of world, like world renunciation, that you become free by, through asceticism. It's kind of that kind of idea that you have, you you manage to free yourself from some discursive prison house by asceticism, and therefore you become ultimately able to lead people. It's kind of it is like mystical traditions in some ways. Thank you. More questions, Sami. Sami Zubeda. Um, well, th thank you. It's fascinating. I'm uh, tempted now to get a copy and read through it. Um, now, I, I have a, what may be a kind of very general and simple-minded point um, about the Enlightenment subject and uh, the Kantian subject. You know, Talal Assad and Azan, I'm not very familiar with Sabah Mahmoud, I know in outline. Uh, uh, they are, as uh, Dennis said, you know, trying to get away from, you know, that, that, the, that the enlightenment, the non-enlightenment subject. And yet, you know, if we look at the everyday, and the everyday, as Claudia said, is this kind of taken for granted world, then within that, uh, at the simplest level, the question of ethical choice doesn't arise because people in their everyday are just um, following custom and routine and what have you. But for the uh, Sabah Mahmoud's pious women, uh, it's going beyond the everyday. It's, they are the Kantian subject. <laughs> they are the Kantians because they are oriented to value. You know, they are not, they are, they are not uh, behaving <coughs> in relation to the uh, incentives and constraints and habits of everyday life. They are aspiring to value beyond and therefore, you know, they, they are sacrificing all kinds of things in order to achieve these values. So paradoxically, they are precisely the Kantian subject that uh, Talal Asad and Sabah Mahmoud want to say are not the uh, Muslim, you know, the discursive tradition. And this discursive tradition, as you say, apart from being essentializing, or because it's essentializing, what happens to all those Muslims and sort of Arab and Turkish secularists who are not in this uh, discursive tradition. I mean, they are, 
the, the, the Islamic reformists like um, uh, the Egyptian, uh, or forget his name now, uh, they are disqualified as Muslims because mm -hmm. they are outside these, yes, these, uh, these traditions. And what happens to the kind of ardent secularists and rationalists <laughs> and enlightenment thinkers that have been in the Arab Nahda, in the Turkish, uh, uh, the Ottoman 19th century and into the 20th century. What happens to all this? Where are they? Are they all now the Westerners? Are they no, Westerners no, no. or are they? No, <laughs> they, they are the bearers of tainted subjectivities, yeah. Yeah. obviously. That's right. Because they clearly are aping yeah. the colonial West. Mm. Mm. This is, you see, this is it. You know, it sort of has. Said himself. Uh, precisely, <laughs> but you know, I mean, the certain categories what is, what, what are is, excommunicated what is, from. What is his side of enunciation that allows him to say these things and at the same time not to be a Muslim and not to be in the Muslim. Uh, I think uh, he is a Muslim. But no, no, he's not. Well, he's as Muslim. Not a good Muslim. He's as Muslim as well. He's not practicing. <laughs> you see, I think. Anyway, maybe I've, I've yeah. spoken too long, but I think that there are very few. Uh, that that's why I find that the anthropology of Islam has sort of run into the buffer slightly. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that the requirements of belonging have been defined quite so rigidly for any faith in the world. In other words, you can be born a Christian and remain a Christian, even if you're not particularly observing, okay? Uh, there are some Jewish people who call themselves atheists, and, you know, they're still Jewish atheists, exactly. But the, the strictures on Muslims, you know, to, to be, uh, to conform. This is, I think, the victory of Salafism, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the sense that it has pushed out uh, any possibility, <laughs> any wiggle room. Because, you know, I was at a conference on migration where people were talking about, you know, Muslims, etc. And I said, well, you know, there's lots of, you're only looking at, you know, migrants coming from rural Bangladesh or Pakistan. Lots of migrants in the city, tons of Turkish bankers, tons of Iranians in the city, you know. Um, and these guys, you know, uh, circumcise their children, you know, they're going to be buried as Muslims. They may have a drink with their friends after work. What the hell, you know, who are these people? And suddenly there was great discomfort because these people could not be classified somehow. You see, they could not be contained. Uh, but this straight jacket, by the way, was created by Western theorists. Of course. Let's make no mistake. Yes, of course. You know. I think that in Britain you can be a British Muslim without being religious. Uh, I mean, can I just say, in defense of Assad, <laughs> this Assad bashing. Yeah. No, no, it's not bashing. It's no, no, just and also to respond to Sami, my understanding is I don't think Assad would have wanted would have wanted to define who is a Muslim and who isn't. Like the whole point of his discursive tradition was precisely to allow, to show how these negotiations take place and who establishes, what are the power relations that establish who is considered a proper Muslim or not. Now that his descendants, there is something to be said about where this theory then took people to sort of focus on piety as opposed to, for example, Lara Deep's book, 
precisely leaves a lot of room oh, for yes. people who are, you know, who are not <coughs> officially or who have some sort of funny stories that are considered Muslims or certain beliefs that are, you know, other people would denounce as non-Muslim. So just to clarify that I, I personally don't think Assad himself intended for, you know, the the study of um, Islam to kind of go in the direction of piety and Salafism as opposed to uh, just as a, as a kind of like a no, point. We're talking about the discursive <laughs> tradition. Yeah. You know, I the think, you know, Abu yeah. Zayd, concept, you know, yeah. for example, Abu Zayd, I think, was actually <coughs> judged to be outside the discursive mm. tradition. Yes. Yeah. And even Muhammad Abdo was criticized yes. in various yeah. writings of the. Mm -hmm. I was going to say something else about what you said. See, I don't think that the everyday is non-ethical. If you take Goffman, for example, he, he stresses the fact that even the surface behavior on the everyday has certain normative and moral understandings. And the, on the other side, when these women are inculcated into this praying and all these things that they do, the attempt is to make them stop, to take it for granted make it so much a matter of routine, ingrained routine, that it is a value. It, 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 there are discussions of values in it, but they don't want it to be a thing where you have to think each time. They want it to be something unreflective. Mm. They, they may not, I don't think they succeed necessarily, but that's the aim. Great, other questions? Well, uh, can sure. I'm sorry if no, uh, no, you know. No. Please tell me to to shut up. Never. But on the question of the anthropology of Islam, you know, we come back to this. Why is there an anthropology of Islam and not of anthropology of Christianity? There is. I mean, you know, it means to say that uh, uh, you know anthropology of Islam. It means any particular situation being studied by anthropologists. Never mind all the other characteristics of that situation, Islam trumps it. I agree with that. Mm. I, I do agree. I think that I, mean, I studied uh, people in Britain who claimed to be Muslims and they were Pakistanis and they were Punjabis and they were South Asians and they were Mancunians. I think it was, would have been a big mistake if women just focused on Islam and, uh, and especially because there's so many different kinds of Islam. I think that this anthropology of Islam has an essentialist aspect to it that sort of stops when we're thinking about the more complex, multiple identities that people have. Then I mean, building up on this, we perhaps we should ask why is there no anthropology of secularism? Or um, I mean, this oh, is sorry? of secularism, of yeah. secularity. I mean, this is now coming into effect, but in, in a way, secularism is a discursive tradition, one could argue, perhaps, as well. It's not a historical, I, I mean, no, it was never argued to be a historical, but it is very much a cultural process, I, I would say. And um, so secularism in Turkey could be a very different thing from secularism in um, in the UK or secularism in Egypt, and um, so um, so that this could also be a, a very um, a rich topic to um, within 
um, the study of um, the Levant region, I, I feel. Um, and about the um, this discussion on the non-enlightenment subject, I mean, um, I think that it also matters whether we um, study um, Islam in a Muslim majority context or in, in a context of, um, of Europe, of um, a Muslim minority. And um, I mean, in the, the moment um, one is pushed into this niche of radical alterity um, in, in an Islamophobic environment, um, I think um, the entire setup changes. And, and I think not for nothing um, did um, Nadia Fadil and Mayanti Fernando, who argued, um, one could say, for Islam as a discursive tradition, um, study um, Islam in, in European contexts. Mm. And so mm. one could also um, think through this, um, in what ways um, do, um, does our, should our perspective on the anthropology of Islam or on Islam or on um, gender <laughs> and the everyday change um, when we study um, in, um, in minority contexts or in, in majority contexts. Which brings us back to institutions again, and the institutional yeah. setup. It's very different mm. to occupy a place where your chances of making a bid for state power, let's face it, are weak. What you're asking for is equal rights to be accommodated mm. within the community. But the idea that you're going to establish Sharia in Whitehall, I'm sure some people <laughs> probably do <laughs> hope and believe that this is going to happen, but it's remote. Mm -hmm. However, when you're talking about the same phenomenon, you know, in, in countries where uh, there are powerful political players who are making such a bid and are sometimes successful, then it changes meaning completely. Rosemary? Thank you. Um, I, I've been absolutely fascinated, and I am not in the least bit qualified to comment on most what has been said. But could I pursue this point about um, the empowerment of women that you, Denise, were, were laying out for us? That uh, the irony that mm. they are being invited to school other women and how to be pious and submissive and so on, and of course in time, something quite different mm. could emerge. Are you able, any of you, to compare the trajectory? The point was made that uh, women are now uh, demanding and having the right to uh, read the scriptures in Judaism and, in, and to uh, join the priesthood in Christianity. Um, is there a trajectory here? Um, and what you are discerning in Islam, is is it a bit behind the other trajectories? If so, is it possible to say, from what we can observe in Christianity and Judaism, um, what the potential is uh, with what you have been looking at in Islam? I mean, in, in Indonesia, there are now 
female ulema, that is, clerics or whatever you, preachers or, and, and that is a trajectory. I think there is a trajectory, but we're, it's well behind the other two movements, but it's in the same sort of country, as it were, the same sort of trend. Um, I mean, just to, I want to answer your question, but just the point I want to make about this. I think it's very difficult to compare the trajectories of these three religions, and one of the reasons is because Islam as a religion doesn't have a, clergy. Uh, yeah, doesn't have a clergy, and doesn't have a, uh, how do you say, like a, a monastery tradition? A priesthood. A priesthood, yeah. Mm. So there is not supposed to be an, um, an intermediate between the believer and, and the... But it's and the, the same state. in Judaism. So, it's the same I mean, in Judaism. I mean, no, but, yeah, but the difference is that the, now what's happening is not that women are now allowed to become, uh, you know, to be part of the clergy or anything, it's more that... Oh, oh no, 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 I, didn't, I wasn't actually looking for um, evidence in, in, in that much of an institutional sense. Mm -hmm. I was, um, and actually um, a million years ago I worked at RUSI, and we, I organized a discussion um, where Mahazam and, um, I'm trying to remember who the other one was, was discussing <coughs> Um, pious women in Saudi Arabia, and this would be in the first half of the 1990s that we were having this discussion, and what Maha was aware of was um, women sharing audio tapes with each other where they were looking at the Quran mm -hmm. and discussing the meaning, and the same point that has been made here came up that the women were going on to embarrass their husbands. Mm, of course. Um, and on ground that was very difficult for the husbands to make a comeback. It's in that sense that we see um, the erosion of the traditional power structure potentially, and that's what I was asking for, is is because um, uh, if what we were discussing Actually, the men who attended that discussion were typically the kind of people that you would get at Rusi who um, had been in the British Armed Forces and whose knowledge of Saudi Arabia had to do with working with their armed forces. And uh, they were extremely lacking in knowledge about life on the women's side of things in the kingdom. But a number of these men chose to bring their wives to this discussion, which I thought was fascinating. Mm. And those of us who were women in the room had absolutely no difficulty understanding how exciting what we were hearing about mm. was. And the men, I'm afraid, a good many of them, were denying it could possibly be the case. Just a comment on the institutionalization that you spoke about. So my own research last year was looking at women in Britain, Muslim women in Britain, and their kind of access to religious education, religious knowledge. And what I found was that a lot of the women would engage in religious knowledge and religious authority and not really be bothered about the origins of those authorities. So often, even though there are institutions in place and they have a lot of influence, um, from the women that I was researching, 
they were only interested in accessing that information which confirmed what they wanted to practice and what they wanted to believe. So um, I know it's different from the Levant and how things work there, but in Britain it's really important to look at um, women's agency and their rejection of kind of traditional authority and basically using traditional authority in order to establish their own <coughs> authority within their families in particular. So within the motherhood um, kind of complex of teaching their daughters and passing on, passing on religious education. So yeah. I guess just, uh, I don't want to speak for Denise, but I think the point, that's very interesting what you're saying, but I think what Denise was trying to get us to do was to go another step by analytically saying that there is no such thing, there is no so social practice on its own without a linkage to some sort of structure. This is what she was trying to say. So in your case, it would be right. They don't care to know yeah. the genealogy. However, if we look analytically, how can we understand why they don't care to look? So what is behind this? Am I right? This is what you were this, That's exactly right. And I did, indeed, I think that's what social scientists should be doing. Yeah. You know, much as I have enormous sympathy for, you know, having huge empathy for your subjects, you know, the, the people you're working on, uh, taking their discourse at face value and not going a little step behind is also, well, Prina has told us about reanalysis and deconstruction yes. already, yeah. so I won't go there. Yeah. But she yeah. wanted to add to that. Yeah, yes, so just, to, just to add to that, um, I find often when you start to look behind where this information is coming from, there's less transparency in trying to even say, um, or institutions don't really reveal where funding is coming from. There's a lot of red tape as uh, kind of a social scientist when you start to try and discover where, you know, um, all this information is coming from, where the leadership is, uh, where people are being trained and all this kind of information. So, yeah, I, I empathize completely mm. with your point. Yeah. Are there any other questions from the audience? I think Adil, you had another. Yeah, uh, I was just wondering, sort of institutions begin to tell the story, which social scientists can yes. reveal. But as Panina would say, the subject is quite at the heart of all institutions, right? Like yeah. the, the intensities with which, as you said yourself, the Dayanit uh, uh, women leaders, the, intensi the variation of the intensities of religiosities mm. is a domain for kind of excavating for, for, for the anthropologists and the and the detailed micro-analysis of, um, of, 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 you know, as it were, person-centric behaviors. Totally. So, so th there's a space for, you know, I mean, institutional analysis does not explain the variation of intensities. It doesn't clearly. exhaust, but if yeah. you read accounts which seem to be in suspended animation, I have questions. <laughs> Context, that's what you're saying. Uh, I context. wonder what happened to the Muslim Brotherhood le uh, women in the current context in which they've been totally suppressed. And their organization, I mean, they, they led giant um, <coughs> welfare organizations in Egypt, health yes. and so on, and many of the husbands are in jail. And they themselves are lucky not to be in jail, I suppose, because they've been protesting and so on. And I don't know if anybody here knows what's happened in Egypt because, you know, mm. I mean, it, 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 it's a bit questionable. It's like they've just suppressed them entirely. Anyone here? 
Yes, but in institutional context, yeah. I've got it. Yeah, I just know that the, the army has taken over a lot of the assets of the Muslim Brotherhood. Like you know, the grocery, Saudi, for instance, was owned by Muslim Brotherhood. It closed for a while and then it opened, but now it's the army that's. Uh, mm. So they're running all the health and the nursery schools and the, the charities? I don't know what happened to the nursery schools and all this, but I know that they've taken over all their assets. So I would presume because you know they had a lot of schools uh, that they were managing in the south of Egypt, and I think I would presume that the government has taken over. Yeah. Any final questions or comments? We want some men. Uh, oh, we've got one more question there. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> well, I had yeah a question that's sort of linked to what happens like in exceptional circumstances like with Egypt. Um, I know you mentioned it right at the beginning about um, the war on terror. Um, I think there's a lot of work on what is happening in, you know, to the family, fractured families, rethinking gendered roles, etc. You find a lot of that in refugee studies, particularly on Syrians, and what's happening to all these women who are, you know, whose husbands have died. But I'm not sure where I'm, I'm not sure we can see yet what kind of rights uh, people are gaining because most, you know, most of the people who are fleeing the war are losing, seem to be losing rights more than gaining them. But it's a very interesting question to kind of, you know, com compare at that scale um, of, you know, like a really long-term war that has huge carnage and loss and what that does to family formations, households, um, and other structures that existed before the war. So we'll keep an eye on, on this question. I mean, uh, on, on Sorry. the subject of uh, intensity of Islam, as it was just called, and um, you know, the ideas of a, a good Muslim woman and so on. Um, what has the research shown about how that, how those concepts differ in countries like uh, Indonesia, say, where um, especially on Java, um, Islam takes a very syncretic form and in, it is often quite a thin layer over other other beliefs. Uh, has research shown anything about whether these ideas of intensity and being a good Muslim and so on are any different in those sort of situations? I, I, I think that uh, Robert Hefner has written a bit of, but I mean, I think they, uh, the syncretism is less than it used to be that these women who are leading uh, the Islamist if you like revival, I don't know what you want to call them. They they're very progressive, but they're also very religious. They're very uh, they're not syncretic at all. I don't know about the ulama because I know nothing about them. But there is a group of women in Indonesia who are both uh, very progressive in their political views and 
and yet very religious. And I edited a book in which uh, Maya Stevens wrote an article about them. I forgot what they were called, but there was no syncretism in it. It was just that they had... See, because the thing is, if you dig into the Quran and the Hadith and so on, you can find liberal, progressive elements, cosmopolitan elements, or you can find very reactionary, conservative ones. And that's <coughs> the whole point, that once they start digging into these scriptures, like in any religion, they can find the most enlightened ideas possible uh, in the very same text that other people are finding something terribly conservative. And that's the great power that they have once they can approach the text directly, which they didn't have before. Claudia wanted to say something? I think you wanted to. Yes, I, I, I still wanted to say something um, to what you said. And I think that's uh, a great challenge. And we, I think I agree that we, we need to wait for, for research to, to come out of, of this. And I um, have a colleague in Bayreuth who's um, from the University of Benghazi in Libya and who is part of a group of, um, interestingly, mostly feminist scholars from the northern African region. And they try to set up a center for reconciliation in Tunis at the moment where um, many um, female researchers are involved and they um, particularly want to address the role of women in, um, in the, um, the protest movement and in the violent conflicts and um, also the role of sexual violence committed against women in the past few years in um, different Northern African countries. And, and I think um, much research will have to be done and um, a lot is happening in this regard. But If you have time online, you can see we published a really interesting article on Jordan on children and how childhood is changing among Syrian refugees um, who were basically based in Jordan. And it's very interesting because it really shows you what happens to children when, you know, when they're child refugees, when they're being trained by all humanitarian organizations not to think of older Syria but to think of a new neutral Syria that is devoid of politics and, you know, how basically they impose, um, you know, how rethi rethinking play and what does it mean to be a child and what does it to be uh, a citizen, etc. So that might kind of answer one aspect of your, your question. But I think on the earlier question, mm, the answer is a flat yes. In countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, or you had Adat, which was more bilateral, inheritance, etc. There is clear evidence that the spread of, of Islamization has changed those rules in a much more patriarchal direction. Plenty of evidence, actually. Wahhabism. Yeah. Right, so uh, I thank you very much for attending and thank you very much to our panelists yeah, for their you. great insights.